Section 23 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles, Kingston. Chapter 16, Part 2. The whole mass of Russians had by this time begun to heave upwards against the slope of the hill. The horsemen on the outside were first seen breaking away, and the next instant the whole of the vast body began to disperse, retreating, and endeavoring to save themselves by flight, followed by some of the victorious troopers, who were, however, as speedily as possible recalled to save them from being exposed to the fire of the Russian artillery, which would have opened on them from the opposite heights. As the enemy were seen in flight, the 93rd, which had been among the most eager of the spectators, greeted them by a loud cheer. While Sir Colin Campbell, his countenance beaming with delight, was seen to gallop forward and taking off his hat to compliment the Greys on their gallantry. Long as the time had appeared during which this strange combat had taken place, Jack, on pulling out his watch, discovered that but eight minutes had passed from the time when General Scarlet, at the head of his three hundredth, threw himself at his foes till they were on full flight up the hill. Jack and his naval companions, who freely criticized all that occurred, had been watching the, with astonishment the light brigade, to the number of nearly seven hundred, who all this time, drawn up on the side of the hill, had been spectators of the fight, without attempting to take the least part in it. "'I suppose we shall hear all about it,' said Jack. "'But to me it seems one of the most surprising things, and I suspect that the fellows themselves must have chafed not a little at being thus kept back.' when they would have done such good service by following the enemy, and rendering their overthrow even more complete than it has been. As there appeared to be no more chance of seeing any fighting where they then were, the party of naval officers directed their course towards the high ground on the Chersonese. Once they could look up the North Valley, at the eastern end of which it was evident the greater part of the Russian army was posted. As they rode along, they passed two French brigades, which had hitherto been watching the southern valley. The French officers greeted them in a friendly way, one and all expressing their admiration at the gallant exploit just performed by the heavy brigade. They caught sight directly afterwards of an English brigade, which they learned was General Cathcart's, coming down from the Chersonese. Trotting on, they themselves were about to climb up the heights on their left, where Lord Raglan and his staff were stationed. When some of the party proposed that they should turn to the right along the Warrenzov road, in the direction of the redoubts now occupied by the Russians. "'We shall be able to beat a timely retreat if necessary,' said Jack, "'and we shall, from one of the higher points, have a view of what is going on in the North Valley as well as in the South.' Without further discussion as to the wisdom of their proceeding, they trotted on eastward towards the Warrenzov road, keeping a bright lookout ahead in order that they might avoid getting under the fire of the Russian riflemen who might be advancing along the causeway. Before leaving the hills of Balaklava, they had observed that the Russians had not got farther west along the causeway than Number 3 Redoubt, known as the Aratabia Redoubt. On they went, till they reached a height a little to the west of Number 4 Redoubt, whence they had an excellent view up and down the North Valley, as well as across it to the Fedukin Hills, where they saw that the Russians were strongly posted. 
The light brigade had by this time moved from its former position down into the western end of the North Valley, where also the heavy cavalry regiments were drawn up, as well as the magnificent body of French cavalry under General Maurice. Far off, at the distance of a mile and a half, they could see a large battery of Russian guns, supported by enormous masses of cavalry. Jack and his companions continued their comments on all they saw. To my mind, observed Jack, the first thing to be done would be to retake the redoubts and prevent the Russians from carrying off the guns they captured from the Turks. I suppose that is what General Cathcart will do when he reaches the causeway, though he is a long time coming. And if I were Lord Raglan, I should be in a considerable rage with him. I only wish we had a few hundred of our blue jackets. We should very soon, I suspect, be masters of one or more of the redoubts the Russians have got hold of. See, see, cried Tom. Here comes an aide-de-camp from Lord Raglan. For my part, I believe that the cavalry will do the work if General Cathcart does not come up in time. Just as this remark was made, the English infantry were seen descending along the Ronsoff road. As they marched on the left, some troops in the two western redoubts deserted by the Turks, and the naval officers had to move down the hill a little way to allow them to pass on to the number four redoubt, close to which General Cathcart halted his troops. As he did so, a cloud of skirmishers were seen advancing along the causeway towards the Russians in front of the Arvaterbia. Here the general appeared to have made up his mind to remain, instead of advancing and driving the Russians before him, as Jack thought he would. Having got a clear of the English infantry, the naval officers again took up their post on the top of the hill. Once they could look directly down on the heavy and light cavalry brigades, near which they distinguished Lord Lucan, the general commanding them. I wonder nothing is being done, exclaimed Jack at length. If they don't look sharp about it, these Russians will carry off the Turkish guns in spite of them. Here comes an officer at all events from Lord Raglan, in hot haste. He must be a first-rate horseman, exclaimed one of the naval officers, or he would break his neck coming down that steep hill. As he spoke, he pointed to the side of the Churros down which an aide-de-camp was seen galloping at a speed of which few horsemen over such ground would have ventured. Though every moment it seemed that his horse must come down and crush him as it fell, he continued his course in safety, and then came galloping up to Lord Lucan. He's saying something pretty strong, if we are able to judge by his gestures, observed Jack. See, he is pointing with his sword up the valley. No, it must be at the Russians on the causeway. He's ordering the cavalry to do just what those infantry fellows ought to have done long ago. And they would have done it if they had their will. I know that Ed de Camp remarked one of the party. He is Captain Nolan. He belongs to the General Ares' staff. Directly afterwards, Lord Lucan was seen addressing Lord Cardigan, who immediately galloped forwards towards where the light cavalry was drawn up. See, the regiments of light cavalry are forming line. They are going to attack the Russians near the redoubts after all, exclaimed Jack. The heavy cavalry is preparing to support them. They will drive away the Russians as chaff before the wind. After this, few remarks were made by any of the group. So deeply interested were they in watching what was going forward. Lord Cardigan was seen to place himself at the head of the light cavalry, while Lord Lucan came closer to them. All eyes, however, were riveted on Lord Cardigan and the light cavalry. He could easily be distinguished by his commanding yet slight figure. As he sat upon his tall charger at a distance of some five horses' length, 
in front of a line, which now began to advance. The spectators expected to see the light cavalry wheel with their left shoulders towards the Russians on their right front, whom it was supposed they were about to attack. Instead of doing so, Lord Cardigan, sitting in his saddle, with his face down the valley, galloped on straight before him. Scarcely he had gone a hundred paces, when a figure, recognized at once as that of Captain Nolan, was seen to dash out from the left of the line and to gallop diagonally across the front. The aide-de-camp was waving his sword, pointing eagerly towards the Russians on the right, who were engaged in endeavoring to carry off the guns captured from the Turks. He had just passed Lord Cardigan, when a shell burst close to him, and his horse, wheeling suddenly, dashed back towards the advancing ranks. At the same moment, his sword falling from his hand, while his arm remained extended, a fearful shriek, unlike anything human, burst from him, and his horse passing between the thirteenth light dragoons, he at length fell to the ground a lifeless corpse. If, as it seemed certain, his object had been to the point out the direction the cavalry were to charge. Lord Cardigan took no notice of it, but continued on right down the valley towards the Russian guns and masses of Russian horsemen at its eastern end. "'Good heavens! They will be annihilated!' exclaimed Jack. "'Where are they going?' Well might he have said that, for in a short time, from the heights on either side, the Russians began to pour down showers of shots and shell and rifle balls upon the devoted bands. Many were seen to drop. Riderless horses came galloping back, some falling in their course, others uttering cries of agony from the wounds they had received. Here and there human forms could be distinguished, some lying in the quiet of death, others writhing on the ground or endeavoring to drag themselves back to the valley. Now the guns in front sent forth their deadly missiles, filling the air with dense clouds of smoke into which the cavalry charged with headlong speed. While the light brigade was thus rushing on apparently to utter destruction, the heavy cavalry was advancing, following Lord Lucan. Can he be going to lead them to the destruction to which he was consigned, the light cavalry? exclaimed one of the naval officers. Thank heaven, no, observed Jack. They have to had a taste already of what they would have to go through. See, they halted. Though why does he not lead them up to attack the Russians on his right, I cannot make out. The heavy cavalry had already lost several men under the withering fire to which they had been exposed during the few minutes their advance had lasted, and they were now compelled to remain inactive while the action was going forward, as the brethren of the light cavalry had been in the morning. It was pretty evident that Lord Lucan could not be aware of the enemy on his right, or he would at once have found ample work for his heavy horsemen. At this juncture, a portion of the French cavalry, the famous regiment, D'Alonville was observed to be moving forward, sweeping around the western base of the Fedukin hills, up which they charged, rushing forward as fast as the uneven nature of the ground would allow them at the Russian infantry and artillery, which they had so long been posted there. As they approached, the artillery limbered up and galloped off to the eastward, while the infantry quickly retreated, though not till many of the gallant Frenchmen's saddles had been emptied. Several minutes of awful suspense had passed away since the last of the red line of light cavalry had been seen rushing into the cloud of smoke. The guns which had dealt death into their ranks had ceased to roar. But what had become of them, or of the brave horsemen, it was impossible to say. 
At length here and there a single horseman was seen moving slowly back, he or his charger sorely wounded. Now more and more appeared several, alas, being seen to drop as they retired. The whole centre of the valley, as far as the eye could reach, being strewed with the bodies of men and horses. As a cloud of smoke cleared off, a dark mass only could be discerned in the distance. The glitter of sword blades and the confused murmurs of voices, which came up the valley along indicating that the light was still raging, sounds ever and anon of musketry being added to it. At length, the numbers of those who were coming up the valley increased. Among them appeared the tall form of their leader, he and his horse uninjured. Then came larger parties, followed again by single horsemen and men on foot, still exposed to the fire from the causeway. Presently, a number of Cossacks came galloping after the fugitives, sparing some and taking others prisoners. But just then, the Russian guns on the causeway ridge again opened, and the Cossacks were compelled to abandon the pursuit, many of those whom they had surrounded making their escape. The naval officers now rode back to the slope at the foot of the Trisanese, on which considerable groups had assembled, and towards which the gallant men who had come out from amid that valley of death were now collecting. The officers were speaking eagerly to them. Surgeons who had hurried down were attending to the wounded. Several parties were on their way into the valley to endeavor to bring in those who were on the ground still, unable to move. Among the last to come in was an officer on a weary horse, which could scarcely drag itself up the valley. Numerous persons went forward to meet him. That is Lord George Paget, said one of the naval officers. He had, with Colonel Douglas, led out the remnant of the 4th Light Dragoons and a portion of the 11th Hussars. Not only had the brigade, though separated into several bands, broken through the guns, but driving the Russian horsemen before them, and finally breaking through all the oppositions, had made their way again up the valley, passing directly in front of a large body of Russian lancers, and once more, under a fire of shot and shell, they returned to the foot of the Chersonese. The naval officers could not naturally tear themselves from the scene. For some stragglers and riderless charges were coming in, and then there was the numbering of horses, and afterwards the melancholy roll-call. Of the gallant brigade, which half an hour before had numbered nearly 700 horsemen, not 200 an hour made fit for duty. 113 men had been killed, 134 wounded, while close upon 500 horses were killed, or rendered unfit for service. Now came the sad work of searching for the slain, who could be reached and brought in for burial. But numbers still lay where the fire of the Russian batteries commanded the ground. As they could not be interred until a cessation of arms was agreed on for the purpose, many a gallant trooper hurried forward notwithstanding to search for his wounded officers or comrades, and several were thus saved from perishing on the battlefield. Another scene took place, trying to many a trooper had been managed to bring his wounded steed out of the fight. The farriers went round to examine those which had been rendered unserviceable by their hurts. Some of the men pleaded hard for those that were condemned, in the hopes that they might recover, but the farriers knew well that they would never again be fit to carry their riders in the fight. Sure, it's myself would rather have been wounded than the poor beast, exclaimed an Irish trooper, throwing his arm around his horse's neck. You wouldn't have shot me at all events. Just be after letting him live for a few days at least, and I'll see what I can do to doctor him. 
I'm obeying orders, Pat, I tell you. If you get stiff, he'll never carry you fifty yards, much less than the mile and a half you galloped over this afternoon, was the answer. Poor Pat, whose hacked blade showed the deadly work he had been doing, burst into tears. As the farrier led, led off his well-beloved horse to the spot appointed for its execution, where with upwards of forty others it was shot. As it was too late by this time to go on to the guard's camp, Jack considering it his duty to sleep on board, and having had the satisfaction to hear that Sidney was well, and of sending him a message, he and his party returned to Balaklava, Tom and Archie were full of the exploits they had witnessed, and were so excited did they become in describing them to their messmates that they declared that they would give up the service and try and get their friends to obtain the commissions in the cavalry. Which means that your friends are to buy you commissions, which will cost them some thousands to begin with, besides finding you five or six hundred a year to enable you to live like the rest of your brother officers, observed the assistant surgeon. I should just like to have the fortune which is lost to his family by each of the poor fellows who bit the dust this afternoon in yonder valley of death. I'd quit the service, you may depend on that, and by a good practice on shore, with enough to set up my carriage at once. The next morning, Tom and Archie had changed their minds, and had resolved to continue serving their queen and country afloat. Jack, finding that he could not sail till the evening, went on shore, taking the two midshipmen with him, to make another attempt to visit Sydney. Having obtained the steeds they had ridden the previous day, they took the way to the coal halting on the first high ground they reached. They saw that the Russians still retained in considerable force the redoubts they had won from the Turks. They seem unpleasantly close to our lines, observed Tom to Archie. Our fellows must keep pretty wide awake, or they will be taking us by surprise some fine morning. Trust Sir Colin Campbell for that, answered Archie. We Highlanders are not men to be found napping in the face of an enemy. They had not gone far when they met Lord Raglan and some of his staff, and presently for afterwards Sir Colin Campbell came up, and when an earnest conversation took place between the two generals. Jack was moving on with his two midshipmen, when an indecamp overtook him, from whom he heard that it was in contemplation to abandon Balaklava, that the ship's guns and stores not in use were to be embarked, and that all the vessels not required were to go out of the harbor, or to be moved lower down towards its mouth. Disappointed again, Jack had to return on board to carry out his orders. He, however, gave the midshipmen leave to go as far as the guard's camp. With directions to return immediately, they had communicated with Sydney. In high glee, they rode on, determined, if possible, not to be again stopped. Having passed through the call, they skirted the edge of the Chersonese to the right, when a windmill, for which they were told to steer their course, appeared inside. After going about two miles, they reached the guard's camp, at some level ground at the top of the plateau. Sidney was seated in his tent, unwashed and unshaven, wrapped in his great coat, looking very unlike the trim guardsman Tom that hitherto seen him. He had just come in from the trenches, having thanked the two midshipmen for the welcome provisions they brought him, he made them sit down, one on a portmanteau turned sideways, the other on his only spare camp stool. So you have come to witness the glories of war, Tom, said Sidney, with a faint smile. 
For my part, I confess, I wish we could have another stand-up fight and get over the work in the trenches. I can tell you it is not very pleasant to stand out in the cold for hours together with the chance of being shot at any moment. Archie and I couldn't help wishing that we were dragoons with the chance of charging the enemy in the magnificent way we saw General Scarlet and his heavy cavalry do yesterday, said Tom. Such a chance doesn't come more than once in a campaign, and you wouldn't exactly wish to perform the feat the unfortunate light cavalry had to go through yesterday, from what I hear, said Sidney. Stick to the navy, lads. You have the best of it. Luncheon was scarcely over when a rattling fire was heard, followed by the sound of heavy guns. There's something going forward, cried Sidney, going out of the tent. In an instant, the whole camp was astir. The bugles sounded, and the brigade of guards fell in. Orders having been received to march northward along the heights in the direction of Inkerman. The midshipmen, forgetting the caution they had received to return immediately to Balaklava, hurried forward, taking their way somewhat to the left of the line on which the guards had marched, who were thus on their right. "'Push along!' cried Tom. "'We haven't much time to lose, and we must see some of the fun at all events.' The direction they had taken led them along a high spur of the hill, past a small body of soldiers, some of whom called to them, but not hearing what they said, they went on. When, coming to the extreme end of the spur, they saw a deep glen before them. Plunging into it, they quickly climbed up on the other side, when they again found themselves on high ground. Just as they reached it, a loud rattle of musketry saluted their ears, and they caught sight of a large body of Russians making their way over another hill on their right, their advance opposed by some English light troops who were skirmishing in their front. On the looking back, somewhat to their right, they caught sight of a brigade of English troops drawn up, and apparently standing at their ease, spectators of the fight. They could make out, however, in front of them, two or three batteries of guns. On came the Russians. Every moment it seemed as if a general battle would begin. I wish we had rifles, cried Tom. We'd go and join these brave fellows and help to keep the Russians back. No, no, answered Archie. That isn't our duty. The soldiers can do very well without us. Well then, let's go to our left and see some blue jackets, said Tom, who had been looking through his telescope. To my mind, we ought, then, to be out about ship, and find our way to where we left our horses, and we shall be getting to into a scrape. To reach the spot at which Tom pointed, they had again to descend into another valley, and to climb up some steep height, but this was a feat that they easily performed. Scarcely, however, had they got there than they caught sight of a body of redcoats farther down the glen, firing rapidly as they retired before a dense mass of Russians. The English soldiers they made out in a short time to be guardsmen, who, though retreating, were doing so with a definite object, and were certainly not running away. The midshipmen soon saw, a little in the rear of where they were standing, a trench towards which apparently the guards were making their way. Archie suggested that they also should get behind the trench, and there do their best to help the guards and resisting the enemy. Tom agreed that it was the wisest thing they could do. Scarcely had they got behind it than the English soldiers, numbering no more than sixty men, who had hitherto been retreating, came to a halt, 
and getting behind the trench stood shoulder to shoulder, as if reminded to bar the further progress of the Russian column. In vain, the Russian officers endeavored to get their men to advance. Whenever they did so, they were met by rattling fire and a bristling line of bayonets. Thousands might have been in the rear, but they could make no impression on the gallant little band. Scarcely had the guards come to a halt than from the very midst of the Russian column two persons sprang out and were received in their midst with a shout of joy. They proved to be one of their captains and a sergeant, whom they supposed had been taken prisoners or killed by the Russians. The officer advised the midshipmen to go, as they could do no good where they were. But before we wish you good-bye, sir, may we ask how you managed to get out alive from among so many Russians, inquired Tom. In a very unexpected manner, answered the officer. I had gone with the sergeant to some distance ahead of the men, when on turning an angle we found ourselves confronted by a whole mass of Russians hurrying up at a great rate apparently intending to effect a surprise. The first men we saw fired at us, and after we had retreated up the hill, several followed, intending to make us prisoners, but we knocked them over with the butts of our rifles. We then found ourselves hurried along by the advancing masses of the enemy. As we had on our greatcoats, the fresh men did not recognize us, and by taking care not to keep near the same persons longer than we could help, we were carried on till we caught sight of our own men directly in front of us. And the Russians thinking we were going to lead them against their foes, we were able, without a blow aimed at us, to leap into the midst of our friends. It was indeed a wonderful escape, said Tom, but I wish you would let us stop and help with you. We could use our rifles as well as your men. To this the officer would not consent, again urging them to make their good retreat while they could do so without risk. After going a little way up the valley, they began to ascend the steep side of the hill, to a place where they were protected from the shot which flew high over the heads of the gallant band below. On reaching the summit, they saw before them a battery manned by English sailors. They made their way into it, and as it was upon high ground, they could see, on their right, vast masses of Russians, who, having driven back by the English skirmishers, now crowned the top of a high hill. The enemy soon afterwards, bringing up several field pieces, began to fire at the English brigade in their front. Scarcely had they begun to do so than the English guns rapidly replied, their shot taking fearful effect upon the closely pressed body of Russians, which seemed rent and torn in every direction by the iron showers hurled in their mist. For some time the Russians stood their ground bravely, and more masses coming on, they threatened not only to cut off the gallant little band in the valley below, but to surround the battery in which the midshipmen were posted, and towards which several of the enemy's guns were now directed. The shot came flying into and around it. The blue jackets who manned the guns returned the fire with interest, but first one was struck, then another and another, and there appeared every probability that the battery would be overwhelmed. Dangerous as was the position into which the midshipmen had got, they were ashamed to retreat. Several more men had been killed, when a sergeant hurried into the battery, ordering the naval officer in command to spike his guns and retreat. When my captain directs me to do so, I will obey, was the answer. In the meantime, this gun will be of service. 
as he spoke the russians who had been driven up the hill on the right were seen climbing up the sides of the valley threatening to take the battery in reverse not a moment was to be lost by immense exertion part of the parapet was thrown down lend a hand all of you cried the naval officer his appeal was responded to the gun being slewed around by the sailors and a few soldiers the midshipmen exerting themselves with hearty goodwill it was fired directly down upon the enemy with such effect that they immediately abandoned their intention of making their way in that direction and retreated with the rest of the attacking force towards sebastopol hurrah we've done for them cried tom unable to restrain his feelings of satisfaction while the gun continued to hurl its missiles into the midst of the enemy as long as they were in sight the midshipmen on their way back fell in with the officer whose acquaintance they had just before made and found that he and his gallant little band with the aid of another small party had not only defeated their host of foes but they succeeded in making several of them prisoners they now hurried back under the guidance of brother officer of sydney's to the guards camp sydney himself soon after arrived and after rowing the midshipmen for having unnecessarily thrust their noses into danger and giving tom a message for jack bade them hasten back to balaklava as fast as their steeds could carry them they got a slight glimpse of the field of anchorman on which before many days were over a desperate battle was to be fought from the high ground on which they stood near the guard's camp they could look down into a deep valley covered with brushwood with a line of lofty hills on the farther side by urging on their steeds they got back to the harbour before dark on reaching the ship they heard that lord raglan had given up his intention of abandoning balaklava next morning the tornado had sailed for constantinople with a number of sick wounded men several poor fellows died on the voyage and the rest were carried to the hospital and scutari end of section twenty three